choose to be a blessing to us this morning. Brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, as we've been seeing, the Lord's Supper serves a number of purposes, and not the least of which, an exercise in worship as we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And one of the purposes that it serves for the believers is to testify to the time in which we live for our edification and so that we might have clear perspective in what we're looking at in the world. Ironically, the sacrament can be misused or even unused to our discouragement. It's ironic because it's not meant for that. Uh, as people persist in ignoring the Lord's command for various reasons to do this in remembrance of me. The Lord's Supper is not intended to leave people discouraged. That's not its purpose at all. It's intended to leave us encouraged and in various ways. To be renewed and refreshed as they, they are reminders and assurances to us that while we may not always like what we see in the present age, we may not always like what we even see in ourselves because of sin or the effects of sin, these ultimately don't belong, these days don't belong to the devil. And I'm sorry, I'm about to sneeze here. I think, I, maybe not, I don't know, but sorry for the distraction. But uh, this day in which we live is not the devil's age. It's not what humanists want to say is the new age of humanism. Uh, these are days that belong to Christ. There may be those who pervert their power, or they may abuse it. They might neglect us. They might neglect other people. They belong to Christ. It's His age. It's the age of the new covenant in His blood. The Lord's Supper reminds us and assures us of that, and, and Christ's sacramental language, as we will see this morning, teaches in that vein of symbolism and assurance, of sign and seal, of reminder and confirmation. We look first of all then this morning, as does the Catechism, as we can see in our passages in the Scripture, that uh, we want to look at that symbolism of the Lord's Supper that is found here, which is part of the Lord's sacramental language. We talk about that in our catechism that God uses, that Christ uses these terms as he does as is fitting uh, for sacramental language. Uh, this supper that Christ had with his disciples on this Passover day was also a supper that would be his last one on this side of the death on the cross that he endured. When something is happening for the last time, inevitably something new takes place. And what were these new things for the disciples? What would be the changes? See, changes can be troubling, right? We're not always comfortable with change. We're not, uh, we like where we're at. Uh, when we're not used to changes, they can be unsettling. And for the disciples, the change that they were encountering was very profound. Because they were envisioning a world without a visible Christ. 
They were viewing what they thought would be a world where Christ was dead. A discouraging thought. And it was tempting them, no doubt, to seek their encouragement apart from the Lord. And Jesus Christ knew that. He knew that they were going to need encouragement, strengthening, assistance, assurance that peace was theirs in a restless world, in a sinful world, that would go so far as to crucify the Lord of glory. You know, we think our days are bad. And we don't want to underestimate or gloss over the indignities that we see around us. But sometimes we like to talk about, if only the good old days were here. We've had a lot of experiences of that of late. We had that when we were going through COVID, weren't we? If only those old days were ours to enjoy again. But imagine what the disciples were facing as the Lord Jesus Christ was about to be crucified on the tree of death, curse, and shame. Had the world turned upside down? Had the world gotten mad? And how could one live in such a world as that? Jesus knew their plight. And he knows ours. And he knows it better than we do. And he knows us better than we know ourselves. And that's why we need to profess Christ. And to follow his word. And to keep our Bibles open. And to follow his ways rather than that of the world. Or our own. But Jesus expresses his concern for those uh, who are discouraged this way. And who need a sign. That's perpetual and constant. In the midst of all the changes that they were going to face. And that his church was going to face. Coincidence that the teaching of the Lord's Supper is happening during a time of discouragement. In the loss of the visible Christ comes the sign of the Christ. And it's important for us to see that this means of encouragement is a sign of Christ's body and blood and not the actual body and blood of Christ. Now that may seem obvious to us. But not so in the teachings of many, unfortunately. And when we fail to see the symbolism of the bread and the wine, we're missing out, aren't we, on Christ's loving intention. And we're profanely placing Christ in a place where he doesn't belong and where he is not. And then we don't reap the benefits of Christ's supper. We are then profanely proclaiming a different Christ. And a different Savior. Not the one that Blake just professed. Not the one that we've been called to profess. But a different Christ. And a different kind of Savior. We're not proclaiming the Christ who died once for all. In his symbolism, Christ didn't want us to get the impression that what he was doing was telling people that whenever you partake of the Lord's Supper, you are sacrificing me again. Now, if Christ wanted that, he would be defeating the very purpose of comfort and celebration and thanksgiving that he wanted to convey. Because that's what he wanted to convey in the Lord's Supper. That's the approach that we were to take. That's what we were to receive when we partook of the Lord's Supper. 
Because comfort is not found in seeing Christ sacrificed over and over again. Because such would assume, then, that nothing in our age has ever changed. And that's not here what we want. We want to know that something has changed. There's something new here. The new covenant in Christ's blood. Sacrifice used to be, used to be, offered over and over again for our sin. But we don't live in that age anymore. We live in the age of the bloodless memorial. The age of the new covenant. The age where the promises of God are fulfilled in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ once for all. That's, that's the age in which we live. How can we go on sacrificing Christ? And who are we to do that? And who are we to assign a priest when our great high priest has done the job effectively, efficiently, once for all? Who are we to say to Christ that his act on Calvary's cross was insufficient? Who are we to take away the comfort that Christ intended when he said that our sins had been fully pardoned by the cross once for all and has called us to profess that very thing. Which is what we heard this morning. Now, Christ didn't want people to believe that, that this really was his body and his blood because that denies the Christian profession of faith. He didn't want us to believe that any, that any more than he wanted us to believe that he was a door. He said that, or that he was a rock or, or a vine. I am the true vine. Did anybody ever think that, oh, Christ is actually a vine? Or a particular vine was actually Christ? Or that he was an actual shepherd by profession? What Christ wanted to do for disciples, for followers, for believers who were facing a future that looked bleak and who were focusing on the earthly, he wanted to raise their eyes to the heavenly, where, where the risen Christ would be reigning with all authority. That's what he wanted. That would be encouraging. That would give you reason to be thankful. That would be comforting. Which is really how Matthew ends, right? All authority is in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Because what's a sign? What's a symbol except for the purpose of pointing to something for our good? What's the purpose of a sign if it's not for the purpose of calling us to remembrance? And I've used that illustration a lot with, 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 especially with uh, children and, and young people that, you know, when, you, when you're driving down the road and you see a sign and, and it has that bend in it, it has that arrow, that curved arrow, you don't look at that sign and say, well, that's the curve. Of course not. It's a sign. It's a sign that's pointing you to warn you. And that's for your good. It, it warns you that there's a curve coming. It's pointing you to the, to the curve. But it's not the curve. It's a sign of the curve. And it reminds you 
And you can bet on, because the government put it out there, in that sense, it's meant for that attention, is that, well, you can be assured there's a curve coming. Well, that's what Christ wants us to do. He wants us to remember. He doesn't want us to forget him. He wants to point out something to us through symbol. He wants to make our life here on earth easier in the sense of giving us a godly visual aid so that our vision is godly and heavenly. But that's what we need. He wants to point us to the source of our spiritual strength. And he does that by using elements that remind us of nourishment. Because without food and drink, we die physically. But the bread and wine remind us that Christ, and in Christ, and in Christ alone, we're alive spiritually. And not just temporarily, but eternally. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 11 that Christ said, do this as often as you do in remembrance of me. And when you see situations from an earthly perspective, those situations can, can only look bleak when we leave Christ out of the picture, when we forget him. Such an earthly perspective is a symptom of spiritual amnesia. The supper reminds us of where we are to look in faith. It revives our memory spiritually. It points us back to the cross where victory was won. It points us to the, to the reigning Christ in heaven. And it reminds us that our thoughts must be heavenly and not earthly from God's perspective and not from the world. The supper presumes our human weakness. But it points us to the strength of our life. The life-giving nourishment for our soul. It reminds us that God has become our, our Father. Just as the bread is given to us, so also the forgiveness of sins has been given to us through Christ our Lord who gave himself for us. It reminds us that we do live in a new age, but not, not a new age which is nothing but the old sin. And it's not an old age where promise hasn't been filled, where God hasn't kept his promises. No, we're living in a fulfilled age of the new covenant. It's not an age where sacrifice has to happen over and over again so that we can get closer and closer and closer to being right with God, but never get there. It's an age where we're called to be living sacrifices for him. Living ones. For Christ, who died for us, once for all. And gave himself for us, and made us right with God. And now has become our Lord over every part of our lives, and every part of our day. The supper is the Word of God in visible form. And as the Word of God in visible form, its intention is the same. It's to focus our attention not on our earthly ways, not on ourselves, not on our works, but on the work and the person of Jesus Christ. And when it does that for us, then we are consoled. Then we are thankful. Then we have reason for joy. That's when we have a reason for encouragement. Closely associated with that symbolism 
in the sacramental language of Christ is the assurance that is found in this sacramental language. One of the things parents often must do with their children is to reassure them, right? You have that sometimes, boys and girls, when you're with your folks and something's not quite right, and your mom and dad, maybe they hug you, or they, they say to you, it's going to be all right. Don't worry about it. It's going to be all right. And, and you, you appreciate that from your, your parents. You're, you know, as children, you need to hear, right, that everything's going to be okay. But who assures the parents? Who assured the disciples of Christ? How can you know that kind of hope without being demented or, or guilty of false witness, even to our children? Is it really going to be okay? Really? Well, Christ again knew what his people would need. Assurance that all would go well. It is well with my soul. He knew that they needed assurance that he would be with them through thick and thin until the close of the age and beyond. And so in the midst of the supper, he, he assures his followers that this supper really is not the last supper. It's not. It's merely the last supper that continues on perpetually, doesn't it? And that's to remind us of our everlasting communion with Christ. Because that supper, supper really never ends. It hasn't ended at the last supper. It continues, doesn't it? Because your communion with Christ continues. Everlasting. It's only the Last Supper until Jesus returns and reunites us into a communion supper that will last eternal. Normally the cups that were drunk at the Passover were four in number. And they would be drunk using the words of Exodus 6, verses 6 and 7, which were words of promise concerning the release from bondage in Egypt. The first of those words were, I will bring you out. And in the drinking of the second cup, I will rid you of their bondage. And the third, which was known as the cup of thanksgiving, I will redeem you. And the fourth, I'll take you for my people and I will be your God. Though it's indeed true, that in Christ we have the promise of redemption and the covenant promise that we are God's people today. There is this promise of the fourth cup yet to be drunk in fulfillment. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. There is that fourth cup to be drunk. Christ will take us to himself and will be his and he ours in a heavenly way. That promise laces our present with unfailing hope. Every time we partake of the third cup, as it were, it reminds us of the cup of thanksgiving. It reminds us of our redemption in Christ. We're also reminded in this sad world that the fourth promise is ours to enjoy and hope this very moment. 
Community real, communion reality will be communion fulfilled when our risen Lord is reunited with us visibly. Is it any wonder that thanks is given then at this feast for its existence and what it teaches? Because you're partaking of the cup of thanksgiving. The disciples are comforted and they're able to celebrate. Is it any wonder that a hymn was sung in praise to God for his promises fulfilled and promises revealed? I mean, we, we do that too, right? We sing a song of thanksgiving after we partake of communion. Despite the fact that we're going to go out into a, a world that's going to be tough and challenging and trying. There was a minister a long time ago who name was Andrew, Andrew Murray, and he wrote this. He said, the supper is a solemnity of redemption, the feast of the redeemed, a joyful repast, you know, a meal at which God himself says to us, let's eat and be merry. A thanksgiving banquet at which is heard a prelude of the song of the Lamb. Let me ask grace to sit down joyfully and thankfully, so shall I honor God. He that offers praise glorifies me. God is, is too little honored by his people. A joyful, thankful Christian shows that God can make those that serve him truly happy. He stirs up others to praise God along with him. And so shall I enjoy the supper aright. Sadness cannot eat. A joyful heart enjoys food. To be thankful for what I have received is what my Lord has prepared is the surest way to receive even more. And so shall I be strengthened for conflict and for victory. Thanks be to God who always causes us to triumph in Christ. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. If my Savior were singing, went singing from the Lord's table, to the conflict in Gethsemane, may I in the joy of his redemption follow him with thanksgiving into every conflict to which he calls me. And you have good cause to be thankful, says Murray. Oh my soul, look at Jesus and his blood, at his redemption, at his love, at his blessed fellowship, and let all that is within you praise him. Drink, yes, drink abundantly of the cup of thanksgiving, which we drink giving thanks. See, when you come to communion, when you come to communion in the next month, the Lord willing, and if it's your first time, thank the Lord for the love He's shown to you by giving this holy feast. And thank Him for the symbolism that, that points to His completed work, not His partial work. The communion that you already enjoy with him. And the unfailing hope that's going to become sight. Thank him for the assurance the supper brings. Be glad for the opportunity to focus on the Lord in the feast. It's his age in which we live, after all. It's an age where he says, I'll commune with you. I've redeemed you. I am and I will be your God. I'll be with you always to the close of the age. <laughs> There's plenty of... If you want discouragement, go out in the world and look at it. 
But in a world that's filled with that, we need not neglect the encouragement that we get from the Lord's Supper. We need that kind of encouragement. Young and old, young people, to profess Christ. And even as we are in our senior years, we need that kind of encouragement from our Christ. We need it so that we can live thankfully before Him all our days. And that is something that the Lord gives us when in faith we partake of the Lord's Supper. Amen.